Welcome to How Do You Write? I'm your host, Rachel Heron. On this podcast, I talk to authors about how they write, what their process is, and how their lives fit together. I'll keep each episode short so you can get back to writing. Well, hello, writers. Welcome to episode number 307 of How Do You Write? I still can't believe that those numbers are that high. Uh, I'm Rachel Heron. I'm so thrilled that you are here with me today as we are talking to Diana Kelly Saeed and It's a fabulous conversation about many things which I am very interested in, and we had a fantastic time. Uh, And we were talking about silencing the mental voice of lamentation, you know, the one that is in your head, lamenting when you sit down to write. So uh, stick around for that. It's going to be fabulous. All right. What is going on around here? Well, I hit the trajectory additional point at which I must quit writing a book, which is about 88 to 90%. And this time I hit 88% really thought last week that I was going to write my way to the end of this book that I'm writing. And I can't, I just never do. I recommend that everybody does that. I, I always write to the dark moment and then a little bit after. And here's the thing. And Larry Brooks backs me up in this in story engineering. Um, if we have written a good enough dark moment, it shouldn't be easy to write our way out of. And even though I have ways in mind that I'm going to write my way out in this book, I need to revise it to understand it more. And then I will exit the book. So what that means is this um, first day of the week, this week, I got to start revisions on it. And I'm so happy to be back in revisions. And I've got to say, I'm thinking a lot about this particular process that I put into place for myself, which works for myself and probably a few other people, not everyone, because not everyone does everything the same way, but I'm calling it reactive writing in my head. Um, And I am writing every day, reacting to things I'm thinking about, about the story. And it's really giving my overthinking brain a job to do, really kind of harnessing it. And that's why I was able to write this draft so quickly. And I believe, I mean, well, we'll trust it when, when it's done, but the, the revision is already pulling together. Like things are in, in a much better place than they usually are. And instead of, <laughs> instead of all the lamentations right now, I have very few, I'm about 12,000 words revised and about to hit the inciting incident. And I think it's, I think it's good. I think it's, I really like it. So that is exciting. That is what's going on writing-wise. I'm spending a lot of time doing that. Uh, What else is going on? I'm going away for the weekend to Auckland to see Orville Peck, who I love. If you have not heard Orville Peck's magnificent voice, go check him out. He's incredible. And this will be our first show since the pandemic. So um, we're both very nervous about it and also very excited. yeah, what else? Oh, um, a little author drama this week over on the TikTok, and it is all cleared up now. There was a there was a business, um, there was a a person who was trying to be a small press, totally admirable, fantastic. And she wanted to publish other people, but not only had she not done any work in setting up how to do it correctly, she was also lying to people. And it pissed me off, and I did a I did a TikTok video. Uh, I was not the only one talking about this person um, and and her company practices. 
but I don't like to be in the middle of drama. But one of my friends was being affected and I don't like that. And even, even more than that, my, my friend can take care of herself. You know who can't take care of themselves is brand new writers who don't understand the industry. And if you've been around my channel for long enough, you know that I have talked about this before, but I'm going to do a very, very, very quick explainer on the different types of publishing. Okay. Let's try to keep this at five minutes or less. I think I can do it. All right. So there are, I'm going to throw a bunch of terms at you. There's vanity publishing, there's self-publishing, there's indie publishing, there is hybrid publishing, and there's traditional publishing. Vanity publishing is a company that will charge you a great deal of money to produce your book. Usually not a great quality, not well edited, not great covers. And then you get to buy your 10 copies or whatever it is that you want, and it will never sell anything more than that. Vanity presses have been around. They are, they're dying out because they're starting to be called something else. And we'll get to that in a moment. Uh, but there, there, there are still a couple still out there still trying to get baby writers who are excited about getting their work published and vanity presses will send them something that says, um, absolutely. You have been accepted. We would like to offer you a contract of publication. We love your book so much. They don't love your book so much. They want your $10,000 or $20,000 or whatever it is. Uh, and they get it from a lot of people. So that's vanity publishing. None of you are in any danger of doing that. I know. And then there is indie publishing versus self-publishing. A lot of people wonder what the difference is. Okay. There's no difference. Self-publishing is the same as indie publishing. We use the words interchangeably. Self-publishing is fantastic. You know, from hearing me, uh, I am happily self-published in for many of my books. It's where I make most of my money. Uh, when it comes to book sales, I make more money in self-published than I do in traditionally published. And that's the way to go if you want to retain total control over everything you do. Yes, you have to hire out the editing. And yes, you have to find a cover designer. And yes, you have to learn all the ropes yourself, but you retain ultimate control. Then there is traditional publishing, which is uh, being published by one of the big five publishers, which host hundreds of imprints, which are kind of like tiny miniature presses within the publishers. Um, and there are five of those right now in New York. They're big. Um, and then there's also a bunch of smaller presses that do, that are considered traditional. They're, they're traditional publishers, but they're smaller than the big five. And then of course there are the Amazon imprints as well, which can be a little bit confusing, but Amazon has its own traditional publishing arm. Um, so Lake Union does the women's fiction and memoir for Amazon publishing. This is not something you can choose to do. They're just like a traditional publisher in that you have to have an agent and you have to submit. So uh, submit your work through your agent to try to sell your book to a publisher who will then publish it, quote unquote, traditionally, even though Amazon doesn't really do it traditionally because it, you know, it's not going to be in bookstores for the most part. So traditional publishing, also fantastic. You know, this is how you get distribution. This is how you end up in places like Barnes and Noble or your local independent bookstore without you having to do anything about it. Um, lots of people love, and I am one of those people, to be what is known as a hybrid author. A hybrid author, and I know these terms are confusing, which is why I like to bring them up as much as possible. A hybrid author is someone who just, who does independent publishing. 
they do self-publishing and traditional publishing. They are self-pub and trad pub. So they are a hybrid author. Studies have proved that they make the most money and it just makes sense. They have one foot in either stream. They can pivot really easily. Uh, they, they kind of do what they want. Um, of course, not all the time. I can't guarantee myself that my agent will be able to sell a book for me to any publisher ever, even though I've had books sold in the past. That, that doesn't mean anything. So, um, But at the moment, I am a hybrid author. So the word hybrid is used another way too. It is used when we are talking about hybrid publishers. And here is the warning. I've said this before, but I'm going to say it again. Hybrid publishers are two inches away from being the new vanity publishing. There are a couple of exceptions. She Writes Press is one of them. They do a great job. Uh, What a hybrid publisher is, is they will take your money and then they will have your book edited by one of their professional editors. They will put on hopefully a fantastic cover. They will get the ISBN. They will do the listing of your book. They will publish it. So when you look at your book, it will be under the name of the hybrid publisher. So Rachel Heron's book called uh, Rachel Heron's book, published uh, author, Rachel Heron. Publisher, it'll say the hybrid publisher, like she writes press or whatever the hybrid publisher is. Here's the thing. Hybrid publishers have to charge you money. They have to charge you money because they're not doing this out of the goodness of their heart. They're not going to pay two or $3,000 for an editor to edit your book and then put it up online and hope it sells seven copies. That's not a good business model for them. So if it is a reputable hybrid publisher, it's an okay place to give your money to. It really is. Uh, a reputable hybrid publisher. And there's a bunch of parameters for this and just Google um, independent booksellers association, hybrid publishing, and it'll come right up what the recommendations are. But two of the biggest recommendations are that they can demonstrate sales of the books that they publish. You do not want to go with any publisher who's just going to throw your book up online and nowhere else or do a print on demand version, but not get it into shops. Um, You, as the author investigating this potential hybrid publisher that you're thinking about going with, go on to Amazon, go to the book section, pull up the advanced search and put in the publisher's name under the publisher. Look at all the books that they're publishing. Look at how they are reviewed. Are people reviewing them saying, this is a dumb book and it was full of typos? Or are they reviewing them saying, oh my God, this was the best book I ever read. Incredible writing. I, I can't even, I'm telling all my friends about this book. That's going to suggest that this publisher, this hybrid publisher is getting good editors to look at their author's work. Um, also, always feel free to reach out to the authors who have been published by a hybrid publisher you might be thinking of going with. Send them an email. Say, what's your experience? Have you sold seven copies or have you sold 7,000 copies? Where, you know, please help me out, try to help me decide whether to give my money to this hybrid publisher. They also need to demonstrate that they have distribution channels established with places that can get your books into vendors, not just into readers' hands from e platforms, but established channels with vendors so that their books 
are printed out and they go somewhere and they end up on a table where people can browse and pick it up. If they're not doing that, they're just taking your money and it's probably a scam. I'm going to go out on a limb and probably get in trouble for saying it, but most hybrid publishers today are a bit scammy. They just want your money. That is what it is. If you just want a book out there, it might be a fine way to go. There is another thing in here that um, needs to be clearly said. There's also author services companies. And these author services companies, they kind of do everything a hybrid publisher does, but they don't publish the book. They're just helping you get your book into the best shape it can be so that then you can self-publish it and then you retain all the control. Oh, one thing I want to say about hybrid publishers is they're taking royalties from you. You're not going to make the 70% you could make at Amazon on your book. You're going to make maybe 50-50 of whatever the royalties are um, because the hybrid publisher will take some. Author services companies will not do that. They'll just charge you to get your book edited. They'll charge you to get your um, cover made. They can be super, super helpful. And I do not have one to recommend to you. I'm sorry if anybody does, I would love to hear about it, but I don't know of one off the top of my head that I would, I would just trust. Um, it's hard to trust. I personally believe that if you're going to go the self or indie published route, and you want to have more than one book out in the world ever, that you should do all of this yourself. You should go to readsy.com or Rachel Heron dot com slash read Z-R-W-D-S-Y for my affiliate link and find an editor. Find a graphic designer also from Readsy there if you if that's a great place to look. Learn how to do all of this yourself. Learn how to hire the editor who will be best for your book rather than trusting an outside author services party to say, oh, we've got this great editor who would love to work with you. How do, how do we know if she's any good? You're going to need to have some word of mouth recommendations on whether this is going to be a good fit for you. Again, you get to ask these questions. Oh, really? This is the editor my book would be with. Can you tell me some of the other books that she has edited? And then you go look them up on Amazon and you look at the reviews and you contact the author and you say, how was this editor? Do your due diligence. Just do your due diligence around all of these things. So we have covered vanity publishers, ixnay on the Anity Bay. Uh, in, indie or self-pub, fantastic. Trad pub, fantastic. Hybrid publishing, be very, 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 very careful. Probably very close to vanity. And then there's author services companies who can help you navigate these waters and figure out what you need to, to self-publish your book. I hope that is helpful. Please allow me to um, step down off my soapbox now. And I'll probably hit this again in a year because I feel like I get a lot of, I probably get one email a month from somebody saying, is this a real um, publisher? They said they want to publish my book. Is it real? And I hate sending those emails that break hearts that say, this is not a real publisher. You are getting scammed. Um, one way to look for these things, ally with the independence, uh, wait a minute, the Alliance of Independent Authors, something, A-L-L-I. Search for their uh, watchdog list. They have a list of presses that they recommend or do not recommend. Also, Writer Beware by Victoria Strauss, I think is still a thing. Absolute Right Water Cooler 
is back. It was down for a while, but the absolute right water cooler go there um, into the forums and put in the name of the publisher that those forums have everything. And those forums will tell you if this is scammy or ugly or icky. And it's amazing how many people don't do this. And then they end up spending so much money for nothing. Um, but like I said, if you've only got one book out there and, and, and one book in you, and you want this to be out there, absolutely hire somebody to help you. You can even go with a hybrid publisher. Your book will be out there. Your grandkids will be able to buy it. Um, go with an author services company, same thing. We just want to protect you and not get scammed. Don't give the hard earned cash to somebody who's not trying to help you reach as many people as you want with the writing that you have put your heart and soul into. So, okay. Anyway, that is, I would definitely, that definitely took more than five minutes. Jeez. I think it took 10. All right. <laughs> Let's jump into the interview then, shall we? Um, Deanna Kelly Saeed is an author, TEDx speaker, and performer based in Greensboro, North Carolina. She's the author of Paranormal Obsession, America's Fascination with Ghosts and Hauntings, Spooks and Spirits. She is a contributor to the groundbreaking work, Love Inshallah, The Secret Love Lives of American Muslim Women, and her short stories and essays are featured in numerous online journals. Deanna is currently writing a supernatural thriller based in the Florida panhandle. She's the pen American America, North Carolina Piedmont representative and works for the North Carolina Writers Network. Please enjoy this fantastic interview with Deanna. I hope you have a wonderful writing week and um, yeah, get some of your own writing done real soon. Okay, my friends, we'll talk soon. Hey, would you like to come write with me with my writing community? At Rachel Says Write, we write together twice a week, every Monday and Wednesday from 5 to 7 Pacific Time, 8 to 10 Eastern Time. We say hi and chat the tiniest little bit, and then together we write. It's truly magical the amount of words we get done together. You want to check it out with a week's free trial to see how it might work for you? Just go to rachelheron.com, Rachel Says Write, to join us. Well, hello, Deanna. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. I am too. Will you please pronounce your name for us and share your pronouns with us? Yes. Deanna Kelly Saeed, she, her, hers. Thanks so much for being here. I have been so excited to talk to you. A mutual friend, Michelle, connected us. Um, and I'm not even sure why she did. Something I said reminded her of you, I think. And then I did a little sleuthing, of course, as I do. And I was like, yes, I want her on the show. Um, so you have a fascinating background and you're doing multiple things and you're working with multiple places, North Carolina Writers Network, the um, North Carolina Piedmont representative for PEN America. Um, where does the writing fit in your life? Can you tell us about your writing process? Whoa, yeah. So the writing process um, is everywhere and nowhere at the same time. Oh, I love that. <laughs> I'm, I've worked very hard to curate a world in which writing is central to that. And, and because of that, I, I have a partner who's a writer and owner of an independent bookstore and a small press. And I work for a literary arts organization and I'm associated with PIN and that's great. But I also um, now finally have space in my life to write and writing happens in the little corners between everything else that I do. I am so fortunate to, to be in a world where I'm truly surrounded by writers. And um, it's a life I never thought I could have, but it becomes frightening when you start to write and you're like, wow, people really are like 
watching me and listening to me <laughs> waiting for my work. And that can become a little daunting sometimes. So how do you handle that? Um, actually, I have two questions for you. Where are you right now in terms of what you are writing? Are you first drafting or are you revising? And, and where do you find those pockets inside your life? So I am first drafting a novel and I want to thank you. I listened to one of your podcasts about first drafting and that has really helped me. So, oh, I'm so glad. Shout out to you. yes, it really got me on the right track. Um, I am first drafting and I tend to write in the mornings. That's when I do some of my best deep thinking, although I do, I will write at other times during the day, but writing is the morning is when I do my deep writing is when I really just wake up and I just sit down and do it. Because if I start to overthink, uh, my mind will become cloudy. And that's really before the the day starts is when I do some of my deep, deep writing. Do you think it is harder or easier um, and I, and I have literally have no idea what you're going to, um, say in response to this. Uh, but, oh, sorry, I'm just going to change my mic. I wasn't picking up the right microphone. So listeners, you might hear a, a difference in quality of sound. Um, do you think it is, makes it harder or easier for you to be surrounded by literary community and by publishing? It's easier in the sense that you know how the industry works and you, if you want to write, whether it's, and to publish, whether it's traditionally published or self-published, mm -hmm. you have to know how the industry works. It's like, you just have to, you have to invest in learning that. But at the same time, because I so strongly believe in literary community and literary citizenship, it's very hard to sometimes pull back to support you because you want to support other writers. Yeah. You want to go to readings, you want to go to events but you do have to learn to say no at some point. There's a writer, Kelly Link. I don't know if you've ever heard of her, but she's a wonderful writer. I might have read um, her. What is she? What is she written? She writes kind of uh, supernatural fantasy literary. I'm sure that fiction. I have read her then. <laughs> yeah. And she, she also has a small press. Um, I'll have to send you the link for that. She said, you have to get an object in your life. It doesn't matter what it is. It can be a ring. It can be any object that reminds you of the word no. And every time you're about to take on a new project or you're invited to do something that takes away from your writing life, you have to look at this object and remember the word no. You have to set boundaries. And when you're so involved in writing community, it is hard to set those boundaries because you want to be there for other people and you want to support other people. But it is, it is, both of those things are so important. It is, and it is so hard for a lot of us, especially I want to say as women to mm -hmm. say that no sometimes. Um, and there's always that fear in my mind anyway, that if I say no, they'll never ask me again. You know, yeah. I'll never be asked to the dance again. How do you handle that? Well, it's really hard when you have a partner who has an independent bookstore and there's tons of events happening all the time. So many events. Yeah. Yeah. Um, COVID was really a godsend because it put a pause on that. Yeah. I try to promote events as much as possible. And then if I can't do it, I just email the person say, I'm sorry. It just couldn't fit it in because we're, we've all been there. Oh yes. I think the hardest thing for us as women to do, and I don't know if men struggle with this as much as female writers do or women writers is giving ourselves permission to take time away from everything else in order to create. It is so hard because intrinsically we're taught that we don't put ourselves first, especially something that doesn't immediately have a rate of return on it. Yes. Yes. That's the hardest part for so many people, especially at that very beginning where you have nothing to show 
for mm-hmm. and it does definitely nothing you will show to the people around you for these hundreds of hours of work that you're putting in. Um, oh, that's so cool. Uh, also, I just have such a fond spot for independent bookstores. I worked in one in the nineties and I just, it'll always be the dream job to me. This is actually the dream job, but the second dream job, does he love it? I know how hard it is. Yes, he loves it. Uh, he's got a co-owner and the bookstore has become very central to intellectual life in this little Southern city. Amazing. And it's, it's, yeah, it's wonderful to see how, to really see how a bookstore can intrinsically change the cultural landscape of a city. You don't often get to see that process. So yeah, books, booksellers matter. Writers matter. Even when you think they don't, we really do. For the person listening who doesn't have that literary community yet, what would you encourage them to do in these during COVID times? Zoom has flourished. I mean, yeah. Zoom events and on- online writing. Uh, not everyone has an independent bookstore in their neighborhood, but some people do have Barnes and Nobles and Borders. And in those areas, those bookstores, even though they're they're brick and mortar and corporate owned, they do they are a place that writers can find each other. Uh, libraries, local libraries are incredible for book clubs and writing groups and things such as that. And writing classes. I've seen writing classes through them. That's a, that's a great point that I never, ever think to mention, even though I live, my books live from my local library. (laughs) Um, What is your biggest challenge when it comes to writing? Uh, The biggest challenge when it comes to writing is the voice of lamentation that is constantly in the back of my head saying, yes, it's like, Okay, there's a couple of things it says. One thing is just like, I need a drink. I'm like, no, you don't. It's like five o'clock in the morning. The other thing, <laughs> the other thing it says is like, you're not good enough. Yeah. You should be cleaning the house or you will never figure this plot point out or you will never figure this out. And it really is almost this constant refrain that's sort of behind back there. And at some point I have to be like, just shut up. You know, I really have to talk back to it and be like, you're not real. You're not effing real. You are a delusion that is just crawling in. And the thing is like most of the time we do figure it out in whatever we're writing. It may take some time, but we actually do figure it out. Mm -hmm. And um, that's an incredible feeling. And that voice is always wrong. And, And the reason I like to talk about it so much on the show too, is to reassure people that the voice never goes away. Unfortunately, I don't know if it'll ever go away, but it gets absolutely, I don't it, it, Tell me if you found this, it gets less important. Yeah. It's just there yeah. it's chipping away. I tell it to shut up. It doesn't really, but I, I do, we do the work anyway. I mean, yeah. you still have that yourself. Oh gosh. Yes. Every day. That's amazing. Yeah. And I, every- and I've talked to other people with, you know, 50, 70 books done and it doesn't go away, but it just, it it's, you know, it's kind of like, in my world, it's kind of like dust. Like it is always going to accumulate in the corners and I'm always going to have to sweep it up. There's not going to be a day where I'm like, well, got all the dust. It's gone now. You know, the house is clean for good. So yeah. Yeah. And I think people get crippled by that. Anyone who's doing creative work can become crippled by that voice, but the voice is a delusion. Yes. The delusion. It's a delusion that we all share. And it says the same things to all of us. That's why I'm kind of convinced that like the muse, the idea of the muse comes from one place and that delusion comes from another place. And we're all listening. We're kind of tapping into the same forces when we listen to these things. And you as a paranormal 
writer investigator kind of person might have some thoughts on that. Um, oh, yeah. I don't, I don't know. Perhaps we'll go that way. But before that, what is your biggest joy when it comes to writing? The biggest story is when you actually figure it out on the page, when it comes together and you create this world in, in your writing that you didn't think you could. And you see it and you're like, wow. Even if it's like a crappy first draft, you're like, oh, I did that. Wow. I guess like research really does help. I guess like, you know, you have to just, I guess keeping at it matters because you do figure it out on the page and then you're like, okay, I'm kind of badass. Yeah. I'll change my mind in a few minutes, but right now I'm kind of badass. Yes. And I love how you just said it too. You figure it out on the page. I sometimes figure things out in my journal or thinking while I'm, you know, out walking or swimming or something, but most of the time I figure it out on the page. Do you find that as well? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Writing this is weird spell casting kind of thing. Yeah. I actually think it is kind of spell casting because when you write something down, it is calling it forth into the world in some capacity. And I'm doing a lot of research on indigenous people and, and the indigenous people first encountered indigenous people in the United States encountered the colonists, they were amazed that they could write words down on paper. This was a type of technology they had never seen before. And it, it amazed them so much because they relied on memory. Memory was an actual technology for them, but the written word was this magical thing. And it ultimately was at their disadvantage that they did not become literate because the colonists could do all sorts of nasty things to them. But I, I like that uh, sense of amazement at what the written word can do because we, because we're so literate, we lose that magical thinking around the power of, of writing and language. Um, we just don't, we, we don't think of it as something that really does carry an incredible amount of weight and mm. how it shapes the stories we tell, how it shapes memory, um, public, public identity. So to be a writer is, it is a form of spell casting. I have um, been thinking about this. So, and of course, I don't think there's any accident that we're talking right now. Um, I've been thinking about this a lot right now. The book I'm writing, uh, I'm kind of exploring sigils and uh, word sigils and writing mm. words down in order to create some kind of motion or um, basically a spell casting. And, and I... I'm so fascinated by it because I've seen it happen in my own work. There's, I've mentioned this on the show, but um, there's a, I'm finishing the revision of a book I started four years ago and it's a memoir. And in it, there's a line that says, who knows by the time I'm done with this project, I could be living in Wellington, organic gardening and making a cookbook from my, you know, the oh produce from my garden. I am not making a cookbook, but at that point, four years ago, we had no intention of moving to New Zealand. And if we did, we didn't think we'd be living in Wellington, which is our favorite city, but the most expensive place. And when I came across that, when I was editing, I was like, Oh my God, <laughs> have you experienced it, that kind of thing? Yes. It's yes. It's writing becomes a ritual because you're putting intent out into the world. And again, we don't realize how powerful that is. Um, I think I had mentioned this in one of my emails, but I'm uh, writing a novel that's partially based on family history, which looks, looks at indigenous, my indigenous ancestors from the Catawba Nation in South Carolina who settled in Florida. And when I first started the research on the book, I didn't realize all the history that was embedded in this. But as I was writing, 
all of these weird things started to happen in real life. Like ancestors, like other other relatives started to show up and with historical research. And then just a lot of weird things happen because you're either two things are happening. One, you're you're literally calling forth a new reality, a new story, or your mind is is making connections it didn't make before because you're creating the space for a new story. But either way, writing makes that possible. And and it could be a combination of both things happening at the same time. Yeah. And I yeah. think that is so cool and so beautiful. It, it brings to mind um, just the idea of writing as, as sacred. Uh, the very first printing press in New Zealand um, printed the Bible, whatever, uh, in but it was in Te Reo Maori, so the indigenous language here. And that particular printing press is still in the small town called Russell. And I went to see it. Um, it has never, ever printed anything but Te Reo Maori ever. And it never will. And it is considered a Maori. Um, they call it Tonga, which is like a, a, a blessed artifact. It will never print anything, but, and I mean, I, I'm going to take issue with the Bible and the Catholics who brought it there, but, yeah. but the idea that they, that they protect it now because it has only ever served that way is, is so beautiful to me. It is um, beautiful. Yeah. And it makes like, it does truly keep language sacred. Um, yeah. Yes, exactly. And we do that as writers. We ah, do. My face hurts from smiling. Um, can you share a craft tip of any sort with us? Yeah. The, Biggest craft tip right now that I'm finding lessens the voice of lamentation is to stick with whatever you're writing and just finish it, regardless of how loud those voices are or how uncertain you are with the material, just finish it because then revision is really where all the magic happens and you need to have a solid, a solid manuscript to revise. Um, for me, the biggest thing is finishing and just to do that and don't judge it, just let it happen and then go from there. What would you encourage? Because I 100% agree with you and I have, and and most of the people who are on the show agree with you. And I've never had anybody ever come on the show and say, well, revision is overrated and really first drafts are where it's at. Nobody's ever said that. So my listeners are used to hearing this, but what do you say to the particular person? And, and these are my students and I'm asking because sometimes I, I want help in knowing how to, um, buoy them when you're dealing with the writer who needs a lot of certainty with where they're going. Mm. And I, f- I feel like I fall into that sometimes too, where yeah. I get stuck in first drafts because I know I'm screwing it up and I don't know how to fix it. And how do I move forward? I would, I would say, uh, certainty is a little bit overrated. Yes. I know, I know you, we all want to know exactly what to do and how to do it but it also limits what is possible when we're faced with a blank page. I mean, letting go of having to be so certain about whatever you're writing means that you're opening it up to all sorts of possibilities and just letting the material become what it needs to be. I don't know if you feel this way, but I do think certain stories call us as individuals to bring forth into this world. And we are given that responsibility to do it. Nobody else is. Um, So we have to trust that we are the right vessel for the story and that the process is going to reward us either professionally or personally. And the uncertainty, if if we are too certain about what we think we're going to do, what we can do, we're going to lose potentially some of that magic. But I hear you 
insane. Like you want to know what you're supposed to do and you want to know how to do it. Because when you don't know, I think our default mode is that we feel like a failure mm-hmm. when we're not, we're just um, in the process of discovery. I think I want certainty is overrated, like as a t-shirt or maybe a tattoo. And there's something really beautiful in what you're saying about um that's how we find our way there. This is, this is the way I feel about first drafts. If somebody wrote a perfect first draft, if that were possible, which I don't believe it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but if they were able to write a first draft and then say, this is good enough, this is what I believe and then publish it. They haven't learned. They haven't learned what this piece wanted to be. And we can only learn from our writing. We get smarter and then we revise it, which is part of the magic of writing. Uh-huh. Did you read um, big magic by Elizabeth Gilbert? I have not read it. No. Well, you might like it. She's got this, um, she's got a very, very strong belief that projects go out and find us. Yes. And if we do not listen, if we don't take care of the project, um, her concept, and I, and I, I don't know how I feel about this because it, it makes me worried, but her, her <laughs> idea is if we don't take care of the project, it will go find someone else to yeah. work with. But, and, and for this particular book that I'm writing, it came to me months and months ago and I couldn't write a about it. But every day I would look at it for about 10 minutes. Just think about the ideas. Cause I wanted to reward it for coming to me. Yeah. I didn't want it to wander away and go live down the street with somebody else. Yeah. Somebody who's not worthy or exactly. less. Worthy. <laughs> or, yeah. It's, yeah. It's, and yeah. I think you bring up a good point that we don't often value our, our, well, we don't value our value as writers yeah. or some of us don't because we don't think yeah. that we're good enough or that we deserve to put our words forth into the world. And I struggle with this too. I'm like, who am I? Who am I to think I can write? Um, But if we take that idea that I think you and I both believe that the projects do come to us for a reason, that is all we need. The project, this idea has already said, you are the one and it's going to suck and be hard and you're going to struggle, but I've chosen you for a reason. This project has come to you for a reason. So yeah, and it's, I think, par- partially connected to our own journeys, whatever our individual individual journeys may be, that this is, this is something that we have to do for our own self-realization. And then we get to a certain point, and then we have more work we have to do on ourselves. So another story yes. chooses us. Um, yes. We're very fortunate in a way. We're mediums, in a sense. Yes, yes. And sometimes I, we don't even, I, I'll speak for myself. Uh, sometimes I don't even know what I'm working out on the page until after the book is done. I'm like, oh crap, that was my yeah. grief book. Damn it. Why didn't I see that in the yes. moment? Yes. You know? And I think what's so valuable about your podcast and these discussions is that people, you're, you're giving voice to a lot of things that people sort of sense, mm. but they don't realize there's an actual voice to it. And there's a collective experience. Yes when it comes to writing and, and thank you for that. Thank you for, for giving a place for these feelings and these emotions. To You're welcome. And thank you for being on it. Uh, as we talk about this, uh, collective hallucination that we all choose <laughs> to participate in, um, what thing in your life affects your writing in a surprising way? One thing in my life that affects my writing in a surprising way um, that's a great question. I don't think you, um, posed that question to me before. Oh, did you? Might, I, I think it was in there. Um, but well, maybe, uh, but, but that means you got to enter it on the spot and that always, that's that always right. does well um, too. I think what I have a very interesting, different, uh, different experiences with different cultures and a hybrid cultural background. And I think what impacts my writing is creating new narratives from a mashup of these 
of these writing, of these writings, particularly right now, where in the United States there's so much talk about race and identity, and making room for diverse voices. And yet, when you're when you're someone who's who's predominantly white, who has grown up white, and has all of these other experiences, I'm Muslim. I've spent most of my adult life as a Muslim, and I've raised African children, and I've lived abroad. Uh, it's just an interesting moment to bring complex hybrid identity when in some ways, in some ways we're really looking for very clear narr narratives around race in the United States. And sometimes we just don't get that when we start looking at people's personal experiences. Can you tell me a little bit more about that um, kind of hybrid culture that you're talking about? Because I am assuming, and you can feel free to tell me to go shove it, uh, that you don't run into many of you out there writing? Not necessarily, although I there are more Muslim writers that I Not identify Muslim, with. But Muslim with the um, native indigenous people background. Yeah, not yet. I mean, I, th I think there are some. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. And I, I, I have indigenous ancestry, but I can't say that I was raised indigenous. Okay. I want to clarify that, yeah. yeah. Um, I don't want to be a pretendian, but, <laughs> but just, you know, I'm writing a book that's set in the South that's bringing all of these things together from immigration to indigenous history, to Islam. And I have not seen it quite like this in any represented in literature before it could be, I just haven't seen it. And if you're writing from a marginalized community, and this is where I'm going to put on my Muslim hat, one thing that you always worry about is like, how much explaining do you have to do when you're talking about certain Muslim traditions or certain words or concepts? And, you know, how much do you have to explain mm -hmm. to a, a non-Muslim audience and that takes up space in your book? Um, like, how do you, how do you just be fully authentic without having to explain yourself? Because normative, heterosexual, white Christian people never have to do that. Exactly. Because um, they are the, yeah. they are the assumed default of yes. everything. Did you happen to read, um, the transition baby? I didn't. It's really didn't. good. And, um, my wife and I read it and we were both talking about like, well, it just seems like there's a lot of explaining in here. And then, and then, and it's a beautiful book. I highly recommend it. But, but my wife finally pointed out, she's like, Rachel, you know what? We are running up against new ideas here that we have never really mm -hmm wrestled with. And she and I both worked on the LGBTQIA national hotline and we have been trained in this and we are queer. We are not, we are absolutely cis white. So we fit into that, that normative space, but, but there was stuff that I didn't understand and needed explained to me. Um, so how do you answer that yourself when you're writing? What I am learning from other Muslim writers is that there is this emphasis to stop explaining, to yeah. stop putting foreign words in italics, to yes. just be, to just exist on the page. And the reader, you have to put some responsibility on the reader to do a little bit of work, um, to, to quit making certain assumptions. And I think we're entering that age where a lot of readers are willing to do that work because they're mm -hmm. culturally curious, but stop writing under the white gaze. Yes. Can you uh, talk a little bit too about, because I don't think we've actually talked about it on this show, but this is something I feel strongly about. Can you talk about that non-Italization non of foreign, I'm putting it in quotes, yeah. words? Yeah, um, I, I can share what the conversations are among the writers yeah. I know is that there is this insistence to stop italicizing words like that because it then automatically makes it as foreign or different. It's, but if you're it's othered, 
Yeah. It's othered. Yeah. When, if you're writing, if you're using those words, you're probably writing with a character who these are this, this is part of who they are. So why would you other it? Um, why would you go into extreme detail about things that, uh, that are probably in some ways common knowledge now, if, for example, if I'm talking about Muslims and praying five times a day, that I think most people who know anything about Islam might know that. So you don't have to, yeah. but it, it also comes from feeling that your story isn't always worth yeah. believing in. And I think that happens with people if they're not, if they're not from the center, if they are in any way connected to a marginalized story, or I don't want to say marginalized, that's not even a correct word, to a non-dominant story, right. this feeling that you have to compensate when you really don't. Mm-hmm. And, and trusting the reader to want to be there with you, to follow along and to use their goddamn mm-hmm. Google if they can't yeah. figure out a word. You know, and uh, and I, 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 as a reader, love to see this changing. And um, and thank you for bringing it up. That is really, really awesome. Um, moving over to books now. What is the best book that you read recently, and why did you love it? I know I I said something to you in the uh, chat. Uh, oh, earlier about a book about craft, which I don't have in front of me right now. I can pull I, it up real quick. Yes, it's. I am so sorry. It's just in the other room. And I should no, it's a, it. it was a craft in the re- real world by Matthew yeah. Celesis. I am dying over this book. Actually. Um, I'm not done with it yet. Tell I'm me how, it. <laughs> it's I'm deep. Like, I keep having to put it down and go, oh, okay, I got to think about that and journal about it. And, and how are you feeling? Yeah, I love it because yeah. I do think as more as different kind of writers with different experiences come into the, the publishing world, uh, we have to change the, our ideas of what we think plot is and craft and appropriate language and characters. And there's so many different ways in which we can write about experience. I don't think mainstream publishing has caught up with it yet, but oh, I no. hope so. They are the dinosaur who will always be lagging yeah. wide ways behind. But what I love what he's doing in that book is just really non-apologetic and just, and, but also <sighs> sensitive and introspective and I'm getting a ton out of it. I am too. And I, because I, I do have a connection to a bookstore and know a little bit about book distribution. And I think this discussion also extends into self-publishing because a lot of writers of color will find much, much easier to self-publish, but there is a distribution block with self-publishing in some cases, like how do you get it into your local bookstore and the whole distribution end of it, which a lot of people may not know how to figure out. So there's still these barriers for so many good emerging writers from different communities because the industry is structured the way it is. So definitely bookstores and nonprofits like what I work for have to start having conversations. Like how can we support these, what what you may call non-traditional writers who are representing the future? How do we bring them into these conversations that we're having? And And they're- Sorry, go on. And in a lot of cases are also writers that don't have an academic affiliation. They may not have MFAs or things such as that. And they don't have um, perhaps the community to discuss this with. And, uh, but, but the really interesting thing is, is that the readership is there. The readers are frantic for what they could be selling them. And it's, and it's the question of how to get it to them. Um, Yeah. You are, you have a cool life. 
Oh, thank you. <laughs> I really think so. See, my limitations are like, no, I don't. No, I don't. <laughs> Shut I up. I love that you call them the lamentations, the voice of lamentation that is rocking me. Um, tell us about you right now. Tell us about um, what you write, what you've written, where we can find you, all of that. Well, I wrote a book a long time ago uh, called Paranormal Obsession, America's Fascination with Ghosts, Spooks, Spirits, and Hauntings, which was a kind of a cultural exploration of why we were so fascinated with the paranormal and paranormal reality TV shows. Yes, so which is on my a- Kindle. It's like at the top of my list. <laughs> I cannot you. wait to read it. Thank you. And I got to hang out with actual paranormal reality TV cast people. So that was loads of fun. And I've written several essays that have been in anthologies, particularly one that was in a groundbreaking anthology, Love Inshallah, The Secret Love Lives of American Muslim Women, which had um, all sorts of beautiful essays from Muslim women about love, including queer Muslim women and divorced Muslim women and And it really, I think, opened, it helped open up a new genre of Muslim voices in Mm -hmm. the publishing world. So many of those contributors have now gone on to write books and that is so cool. That is so cool too, that it that it centers them in this American Muslim arena. And by American, are they meaning North American or actually USA American? Did include North American. North American. Yeah. Very cool. And and it was all, you know, Muslims from all different backgrounds, immigrant, first generation, second generation. It's um that is what the Amer- North American Muslim community looks yeah. like. And now I'm writing, I'm working on sort of a slightly historical novel. It goes back and forth between different time periods and the present day that is take, takes place in North Florida and looks at the complex history of North Florida and the identities that have shaped that region because no one ever writes about the Florida panhandle. They always <laughs> write about Miami. They always, they always do. My sister lived briefly in, in North Florida, so I, I understand. <laughs> Is that where you live now? That's where I was born and raised. I live in Greensboro, North Carolina. Okay, that's right. Diana, it has been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank it you. Same here. So, so great. And uh, you can be found at dianaiswriting.com, D E O N N A is writing.com. Um, and I wish you very, very happy writing. Thank you. Same here. I hope, um, I hope you remain as glowy and happy in New Zealand as you are today. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining me on this episode of How Do You Write? You can reach me on Twitter, Rachel Heron, or at my website, rachelheron.com. You can also support me on Patreon and get essays on living your creative life for as little as a buck an essay at patreon.com slash Rachel, spelled R-A-C-H-A-E-L. And do sign up for my free weekly newsletter of encouragement to writers at rachelheron.com slash write. Now go to your desk and create your own process. Get to writing, my friends. <laughs>